We have heard the report of the spies, haven't we? And it was, in the majority, a negative outcome. Not because there wasn't fruitful, abundant crops and, and uh, goods from the land. Well, there were. And not because uh, it was actually an empty land. There were inhabitants. But because the majority of the spies declared that despite the milk and honey flowing land, they will not be able to go up and overcome the mightier, gigantic, physically imposing fortresses, armies, and even descendants of Anak that were in the land. They have declared then an opposition to the Lord publicly. And this wasn't one individual, but ten of the eyewitnesses of the land. Ten eyewitnesses to the goodness of the land are going to reject the promise of the land. And in their rebellion that's reported in verses 1 to 4, the majority report is echoed in the cries and laments of the people of Israel. I want you to see how, first of all, this is a pervasive lament. Notice how wide and broad it is. In verse 1, all the congregation raised a loud cry. These were not just the woes of ten eyewitnesses who felt intimidated and distressed. Rather, the murmuring and the unbelief and the rebellion was something that, again, with spiritual virus language that we've used before, seems to be spreading among the people with panic. All the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Not only is it a pervasive, broad lament, notice how loud it is. They raised a loud cry. These are not people muffling sobs into the pillow at night. They are publicly and vocally and unrestrainedly lamenting and crying out. They are wailing in order to be heard. And you think to yourself, well, what is this? Is something died? Is this a funeral? Yes, their hope has died. And this is its funeral. They are wailing and lamenting over what they had come to and so near to and now have decided cannot be fulfilled. In, in response to their loud cry and their weeping during the night, there is a turning with laser focus against the leaders of Israel. Moses is the appointed leader who delivered them from Egypt. Aaron is his older brother by three years, and Aaron is the high priest of Israel. And it says the people of Israel, all of them, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, when I use language that, this, that the ESV translation has as all or the whole congregation, I do think this is speaking in broad swaths of text to mean that you could say that the people are rebelling. But later in chapter 14, we will realize that not all of the people of Israel will be disinherited. There is a group, a young generation, that will grow up in the wilderness to inherit the land. And even among the spies, Joshua and Caleb are not rebelling against the Lord. It is important to say here that this is a broad, deep problem. And it's identified by such pervasive language. But we do want to nuance it. This is not as if every single individual is rebelling against the Lord. But it is enough of a problem to say that the whole congregation is crying out with lament. They can hear it broadly among all 12 tribes. There's not a tribe in Israel that isn't undone by the distress of the spies' report. And in verse 2, they grumble against Moses and Aaron again. Grumbling. Oh, they did it in Exodus 15. They did it in Exodus 16. 
They did it in Exodus 17. And then after they left Sinai, they did it uh, again, grumbling in Numbers 11. The murmuring, the complaining, the grumbling seems to be a theme, a pattern. And their language from the whole congregation sounds like this in verse 2. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Now this language, would that we had died, sounds like I wish that. So when we read language like would that we had, I think in our minds, here's what we should translate it to mean. Would that we had died means I wish that this had happened. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt? I wish, we wish we had died in Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? I wish we would have died in this wilderness. Ah, you want to die in the wilderness. Hold that thought. Because sometimes the worst thing that can happen to someone is to be given what they think they want or what they think they prefer. Oh, would that we had died in this wilderness. Well, the Lord will give them what they want. They do not want this land, so they will not have it. They do not want to follow the Lord, so they will not have his presence guarding and guiding them into the promised land. They want to die in this wilderness, so shall it be. This language is incendiary. It is offensive. It is outrageous. It is unthinkable. You would, if I had not said ahead of time that this is the whole congregation of Israel, an idea of a people rebelling with this language against the Lord, you might think, surely these are people who must not know anything of God, who must not have beheld his wonders or been given his word. But indeed, these are the people who have beheld his wonders and have heard his word. And they'd say, I think it would have been better had we died in Egypt. This is what their point is in verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? In verse 3, the question is also in an outrageous tone. The question, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? Well, wait a second. Has anyone in this group lamenting, been paying any attention to any of the covenant promises for all of these months and years. All of the patriarchs, going all the way back to Genesis, have a a, a commitment from the Lord to the descendants of Abraham to bring them into the land. And they say, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? And they don't envision the possibility of to fulfill his promises. Uh, To display his might among the nations, that he might overcome the unbeliever, that he might have as the people of Israel a light for these nations to know the true living God and true worship. They suggest, why does he bring us into this land to fall by the sword? That he would have delivered them out of Egypt from bondage to be destroyed by another nation. They are envisioning not the fullness of God's plan, which he had explicitly revealed long before Moses. This is a mark of not only ignorance, but a malicious attribution of motive to God. Has he delivered us to destroy us? And then they think of their families, our wives, our little ones, meaning their children, will become a prey Well, a prey to whom? Well, if we remember the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all of the descendants of Anak and the Canaanites by the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, they're envisioning if we go into this land, there will be nothing left of our generation as well as anybody we're raising up. They're going to be a prey to the predators of the land. So, in their calculation, they pose at the end of verse 3, wouldn't it be better 
for us to go back to Egypt. They trust the familiarity of Egypt. The pull of Egypt is strong, which is quite striking when we remember it's the place of their bondage. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt as if they reigned as kings and queens in Egypt? Wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt as if they lived with a kind of notoriety and honor before man and God that would have been something missed? They were subjected to harshness by ruthless taskmasters and in bondage for many years. The pull of that place is strong. And they have an unfamiliarity with the promised land. And they doubt the faithfulness of the Lord and the power of the Lord. We know they doubt the power of the Lord because they think that though God has brought them here, the people in the land are mightier. And that though God has brought them out of the land, it must be to have us fall by the sword. The idea of God's promises being true and God's power giving them victory doesn't seem to be on the forefront of their minds at all. They are rejecting the promised land. Because they doubt the faithfulness of God and the power of God. They are more swayed by the intimidating physical stature of the people in the land and all the fortified cities. And they would look at Egypt behind them and think, that seems preferred. And then in verse 4, to ratchet the situation up even more in its outrage, they say to one another, let us choose a leader. Now God has already chosen a leader. In Exodus chapter 2, he's delivered from death in the Nile when his mother puts him in a basket and puts him by the bank to be discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses, even after leaving under the threat of death at age 40, spends those next decades in Midian to be encountering the Lord at a burning bush and sent back at age 80 to Egypt to deliver the people. God has chosen the leader. Moses didn't volunteer for this job. Moses, according to Numbers chapter 11, is so overwhelmed and frustrated with the people on occasion that you can see with his very words him saying, sometimes, Lord, I would rather you just kill me. And here in verse 4, they say, let us choose a leader. All the sheer arrogance and presumption and recklessness of this language. Let us go back to Egypt. Egypt represents in the geographical place, but also spiritually speaking, the place of bondage from which they need redemption. This is tantamount in the new covenant community for people to be walking with the Lord and think to themselves, maybe it was better in Egypt. Maybe it was better off not knowing the Lord. Maybe it was better off before I came to know Christ because of whatever has arisen since. Going back to Egypt in the Old Testament is rebellion. We see this in the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 30, Egypt remained for many centuries an intriguing political place where they conceived of alliance and support and aid as possibly helping people in the promised land. So even years and years later, Isaiah says to them, the word of the Lord in Isaiah 30, you stubborn children who carry out a plan but not mine and who make an alliance but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin. You who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction and to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. It will turn out to be the case, shockingly so, that even many generations later, there will be Israelites who think to themselves, maybe we should turn to Egypt. 
And every time the reader's instinct ought to be one of horror to react against this thinking, don't they remember what Egypt represented? And that going back to Egypt, whether here in Numbers 14 or later on in the book of Isaiah's context, it's always a bad idea because it represents a distrust in the Lord. It represents a rebellion. In Isaiah 31, he says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many. And in horsemen because they're strong, but they don't look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. In Isaiah 31.3, he says the Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. You have people wanting fleshly, worldly security and they think Egypt offers it. Their reasoning is of the flesh. Their security is of the world. They are revealing in mass to be many people among the Israelites who do not fear or know God. Pharaoh is better to them. Egypt is better to them. Not following the Ark of the Covenant in a glorious march of order and confidence into a land prepared to the patriarchs and beyond. You know you're in a bad situation when bondage looks good to you. And this here is the Israelites looking back at their time in Egypt and saying, wouldn't it be better if we go back? And in verses 5 to 10, the response of the leaders involves words of reminder encouragement and exhortation and here in verses 5 to 10 we see the faithful leaders like Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb in verse 5 Moses and Aaron then fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation they're just shamelessly here falling down in front of this rebellious people who have just said let's choose a new leader what does the leader do Moses falls upon his face He's prostrate before the people. And not just Moses, but the high priest Aaron as well in front of all the Israelite congregation. Not just Moses and Aaron, two of the spies. The spies that were numbered as 12 in Numbers 13. Ten of them had a bad report. Here these two in verse 6 are Joshua and Caleb. Joshua the son of Nun, he's from the tribe of Ephraim. Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he's from the tribe of Judah. They, it says here, were among those who spied out the land. What did they do in verse 6? They tear their clothes. The the Israelites say, let's choose a new leader. They're saying this to one another. And and not only before the Lord, but before the leaders. Moses and Aaron are on their faces. Joshua and Caleb begin to tear their garments. Tearing garments is consistently an image of sorrow and grief. It's It's a situation of mourning and distress. Well, it tells us here that these spies do not hear the words of the majority group lightly. They are undone. They are overcome by sorrow and grief. Caleb has just said, let's go up at once and occupy the land. And the Israelites have said, I think we need to go back to Egypt. Let's find another leader that will take us. Moses won't take us. Let's find one who will. They know nothing else to do but to fall on their faces and to rend their garments. The level of bewilderment in the mind of the reader at this point is pretty high. Because we know what God did in Exodus. And we know what he has done for them in revealing of himself in the latter part of Exodus and all of Leviticus and the first part of Numbers. There was so much obedience in Numbers 1 to 10. 
Count these people, and they did. Order your camp this way, and they did. Arrange these people, and by this uh, day, and all the obedience, even with the second Passover that was held, we are so encouraged by so much commitment from the people, so it seemed. And then things get hard. Things get hard, and they get afraid. And sometimes when you are really afraid, you can say some crazy stuff. When you feel overwhelmed and overcome and you think there is no way this is going to work out, there is no, you just think to yourself, well, then we've been abandoned by the Lord. I don't know how this is going to turn out for our favor. Egypt must be better than this. I'm heading back. And those tendencies of sinful man is not something that resides just within these Israelites, right? It's manifested here, but the larger human predicament of wanting to go along in a direction as long as things are going as I wish they were. And whenever things start not going as I wish they were, I'm clocking out. And people might think to themselves, I want to follow Christ. And then he says things like, if anyone wants to come after me, he's got to take up his cross and come after me. And then there are elements in life where obedience is hard and following Christ is costly. And all of a sudden the image of the cross is not just a word, it's a practical application and struggle in the Christian life. It's like, and then this really feels like walking before the Lord and walking obediently to the Lord is costly. And here it's costing their comforts and confidence, their worldly strategies and security. They feel like their whole ground is crumbling beneath them. Moses and Aaron are on their faces and Joshua and Caleb are tearing their clothes and they say to the people in verse 7, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. They got to remember, right, that in Exodus 3.8, God said to Moses, I'm going to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. So the reminder in verse 7 here from Caleb and from Joshua is that this land is exceedingly good. It's not like, eh, and so-so. Exceedingly good is superlative language. It's language of excess. Language of abundance. It's like, okay, it would be better in Egypt, huh? This, this what we're heading to is an exceedingly good land. Like if you compare the two, they're not balanced in the scales. It's not like, well, it could be this or it could be that. I mean, both are fine. No, this is an exceedingly good land. They've not been to this. This is not what Egypt was for them. This is the provision of the Lord. They've been delivered out of bondage, and yet bondage draws them. And he says in verse 8, If the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. You see, we learn in Exodus and in Leviticus that the Israelites at Sinai made a covenant with the Lord. And they committed to obey the Lord that they might follow him. And they would receive in their obedience the blessings of the covenant of Israel. The Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant as it's sometimes called. But if they were to reject the Lord and the words of the covenant, then they would receive the promised judgments rather than blessings. When it says here, if the Lord delights in us, I think that's another way of saying, if the Lord finds us obedient, if the Lord finds us delighting in his word, if he is pleased with our response to him. In other words, he's bringing us to this land. It's occupied by hostile military fortresses and enemies of God. And here in verse eight, if the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us in. So what would what would mean the delight of the Lord and what would mean the lack of delight of the Lord? Well, I think verses 8 and 9 have to be thought of together. So he says, if the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Rebelling against the Lord would incur the judgment of the Lord. But trusting the Lord would provoke the delight of the Lord. 
Don't rebel. That's the plea. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. I think in verse 9, those two commands back to back help us interpret one with the other. Why might they rebel against the Lord? Because they're afraid. They fear the people of the land. And Moses wants to remove that. He wants to plead with them. And here, at least more specifically, Caleb and Joshua do. Do not fear the people of the land. Now, they can't say to Caleb and Joshua, you didn't see what we saw. Yes, they did. They most certainly did see what they saw. They saw the goodness of the land. They saw the fearsomeness of its inhabitants. But they know the power of the Lord. The problem isn't what a Jacob, what Jacob, what uh, Joshua and Caleb haven't seen. The problem is what the majority have failed to believe. They failed to believe the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the power of God. The covenant promises of the patriarchs are not motivating them and sustaining them. We are sustained in our pursuit of God by remembering what we ought to remember. By cultivating and nurturing a discipline of preaching to ourselves the goodness, wisdom, power, and faithfulness of the Lord. And here, they are tempted to rebel against the Lord because all they can see is the worldly security of Egypt behind them and the unknown and fearsome prospects of death in front of them. But the Lord hasn't promised those particular things. He says in verse 9 to them, Don't fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. This idea of consuming something or eating something seems to play on the image of Numbers 13. Do you remember in Numbers 13 this morning in verse 32, it said that the Israelites feared the Canaanites and said that 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 land, it says uh, they are, this is a land that devours its inhabitants. So we go into this land, it's just going to devour us. And Caleb says, and Joshua says, we won't be devoured, we're going to do the devouring. We're going to be entering this land, and those who oppose the Lord, they will be bread for us. And then in verse 9, he further explains their protection is removed from them. From a worldly strategy perspective, it does seem foolish for fortresses and mighty chariots and imposing gigantic warriors of great stature and military prowess to be described as like no big thing. We're just going to go take the land. It's not a worldly strategy that Joshua and Caleb are adopting here. The people in the majority report are defying the Lord by anchoring their hopes in something that they felt like they can accomplish. Joshua and Caleb are assuring them these people in the land are vulnerable. They look mighty. God is mightier. They look strong. God's promises are stronger. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. This is, I think, another way of saying, and if God is for us, who can be against us? This is Romans 8 in an Old Testament exhortation. This is calling the people to recognize who do we have on our side, but God himself, who has redeemed us, guided us, reconciled us to himself, and is leading us into a land of promise. And you're looking at how tall they are. And you're saying, we can't do it. As if God's hands become tied. Their protection is removed. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The Lord is with us. That's what makes the difference. Emmanuel. 
God is with us. God is with them in the Old Testament. He is present in their midst, making himself known to Moses and to the people at Sinai and before and after. And here it is reasonable. It is reasonable for Joshua and Caleb to plead with them to not fear the people of the land, to instead exhibit courage. Faith will sometimes mean trusting the Lord in your fearfulness. And these people are afraid. And trusting the Lord when your worldly and earthly securities seem to be dwindling is indeed a challenging prospect. And here, with the, the foundations, if you will, of the people's hearts shaking, they're exposing their hearts of unbelief. So Joshua and Caleb are trying to rightly speak truth. Don't you remember the Lord is with us? Don't you remember what God has said? Don't you remember that if he delights in us, he will bring us into the land? But the converse is most certainly also true. If the people reject the Lord, not only will the Lord not bring them into the land, they would most assuredly face covenant judgment and curses. In verse 10, you would hope that the congregations would say, Oh man, wait a second, what were we thinking? Boy, we're talking about a bad episode we all just had together. Let's get our minds clear. Okay, Moses, you can get up. Aaron, you can get up. Somebody get some sewing and thread for Joshua and Caleb. And we need, to, we need to just put our heads together and realize onward we're going into the promised land. And instead in verse 10, all the congregation said, stone them. I mean, my goodness, let us murder the man Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb. Let's stone them. And there may have been other unnamed believers in the mix as well. Here in verse 10, the congregation, this is a way of saying such a broad response from the people is felt. That this wasn't some small number, but wide amounts of the people saying, we will end their very lives. They don't want to hear these words. They don't want to hear these questions. They want it to stop. And if, and if Moses isn't going to take them back to Egypt, they, want to, they don't want to listen to one further word from Moses, Aaron, Joshua, or Caleb, or anybody else. They want to do what they want to do. And that is go back. And to stone them with stones is quite a strong punishment. We do see that from time to time as a, as a penalty for severe and high-handed rebellion in the Old Testament uh, Torah texts. In Exodus and Leviticus, you see this identified. You see this in Deuteronomy. Here, this perhaps would indicate, as one uh, writer suggests, uh, that the people of Israel believe they are being lied about or that Joshua and Caleb are bearing false witness and they are going to put them to death and go back. Perhaps that's the case. It would would certainly demonstrate a strong delusion and distortion in thinking if the people who are bearing false witness about the Lord are themselves now turning against Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb as if those are the ones who've committed grave sin and crime against God deserving of death. It may not mean anything like that, however. Rather than ethical reasoning and bearing false witness, it may simply mean outrage among the congregation. An instinct, a mob-like fervor that seizes the people where they say, we're going to stop these questions and these exhortations immediately and we're going back. And so they're going to stone them with stones. But it seems that as the people were selecting rocks... Uh, something disrupted the plan. At the end of verse 10, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. 
So you have this mass gathering, right? They've heard the report of the spies. People are weeping into the night. People are grumbling against Moses, calling for a new leader. Such rebellion leading to this climactic decision to stone the leaders of God's people, the high priest of Israel, and the two spies who believe the covenant promises of God. God shows up in the manifest glory of the cloud. In verse 10, the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to the people of Israel. And what it means for the Lord to appear is similar to uh, Numbers chapter 12. When God summoned Miriam and Aaron and Moses to all come to the entrance of the tent of meeting and then appeared to them in a cloud. What it means is a visible manifestation of the locus and, and, uh, and specific presence of God is made clear to the people. They know that now God has come to them. We notice the cloud and fire representing the presence of God in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers so far. So it is clear that the appearance of God would be something like this cloud, this vertical cloud appearance to stand. The Lord in verses 11 and 12 speaks. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I'll make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. The questions the Lord asks, how long will the people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? This is a divine interpretation of the words of so many of those Israelites among that wilderness generation. What would the Lord conclude? That there is a widespread despising of the Lord in the camp of Israel. To reject the Lord is to despise the Lord. That's the right understanding. To refuse to trust his promises is to despise the Lord. So they're refusing to enter the land. They are rejecting the appointed leader. They said, let's choose one and go back to Egypt. This is a rejection of the Lord. And therefore, despising of the Lord. How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs? God has demonstrated his character and his might. They have stories and memories in their minds of what they have seen. Despite those things, the Lord has said they have not believed in me. How long will they not? This this seems to mean things are at a point of no return for people. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. This is an image of judgment. A very judgment that would end their very lives physically. Disinherit them would mean that this this people of Israel would not enter the land for their inheritance. And Moses is told, or at least, um, yeah, Moses in there in verse 11, but no doubt others hearing as well. In verse 12, I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. We're reminded of God's words to Abraham in Genesis where God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And it's as if the people of Israel need to reckon with the possibility that what God will do is reset the stage to the time of the patriarchs where there is now a nation that will arise from the descendants of Moses instead of all the many thousands of Israelites that have accumulated and multiplied. They're facing judgment and terminal judgment, disinheritance from the land, and then the possibility that they will have another people, nation greater than them, mightier than them, from Moses. According to Exodus, language like this has appeared before. This morning I noted from Deuteronomy 9 that when the new generation, the younger and second generation that's going to inherit the land, when they're told the history of the people, two huge sins loom in the history of their ancestors. The golden calf incident and the rebellion in Numbers 13 and 14 at Kadesh Barnea. 
Here we see language that reminds us of Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, the Lord says, I have seen this people. Behold, it's a stiff-necked people, and my wrath will burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make a great nation of you, he says to Moses. This is Exodus 32. This would say that the anger of the Lord and the judgment of the Lord is of such potential uh, implications for the people of Israel that it's not like just any old grumbling or murmuring between Exodus 32 and now. This is a kind of outrageous behavior and widespread rebellion where God would say, if they do not want me to be their God, I will not have them for my people. In other words, they will reap what they sow. They say, we do not want him as God. We do not want Moses as leader. We don't want this land for our future. And God says, then I'll make a nation of Moses greater and mightier than they. This language of Exodus 32 seems to be in the background where once again, the absolute high handed rebellion of the people is on public shameless display, though it is shameful indeed. But like Exodus 32, the Lord does not eliminate the people. Moses advocates for the people. Moses intercedes for the people. This is the Moses they are ready to reject. This is the Moses who in Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron have said earlier and learned a hard lesson. Miriam and Aaron had said, does God only speak through Moses? Doesn't he speak through us also? Diminishing the role that God had specifically assigned to Moses. It is Moses who intervenes in verses 13 to 19 to intercede for the stiff-necked people. Just like in Exodus. He says in verses 13 to 19, And I won't read all of verses 13 and 19 at once, just looking at some of these uh, verses together. Verse 13, Moses said to Yahweh, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they'll tell the inhabitants of this land. One of the things we notice in the book of Joshua is that what God had done in Egypt had gone viral. And Rahab and others said, we heard what you did to the Egyptians. We know what you did at the Red Sea. We heard about that. That didn't like stay local news. What happens in Egypt stays in Egypt. No, it went to the east and it went into Canaan and Rahab and the others in Jericho had heard about what God had done. Moses says, well, what we don't want to spread is news that God brought you out of the land and then couldn't bring you into the promised land, brought you out of bondage, but couldn't deliver on his covenant commitment. So he says in verse 13, the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they'll tell the inhabitants of this land. They've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. Your cloud stands over them and you go before them. And these are undeniable evidences of the power and presence of God. And and therefore, the Egyptian conquesting of the, the, the Yahweh's conquest of the Egyptian deities was something that would have struck fear into the Canaanite inhabitants of the, of the land. What Moses would not want is that part of what people in the land would believe is that this Yahweh who brought them out by cloud and makes himself known was then unable to follow through to the end. He says in verse 14, your cloud stands over them. You go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, in other words, if if the whole nation was just like one person and God struck them down, 
then the nations who have heard your fame will say. Now, before I see what they might hear in verse 16, um, notice that Moses is concerned about what the spreading testimony would be. He doesn't want the testimony that spreads to be something that would diminish the glory and might of Yahweh. He says, what if they say in verse 16, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he's killed them in the wilderness. Moses says, the nations may speculate this. They They may posit the idea that you are unable, that you lack the power. He says in verse 17, now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. Saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, something else happened in the Exodus event with uh, the golden calf. Not only was an outrageous sin of the people committed, not only was the intercession of Moses revealed, but then in Exodus 34, God reveals himself as one slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Moses says, I remember what you've said about yourself. I remember what you've made known. And in verses 17 and 18, he seems to connect the power of the Lord as being displayed in sparing sinners. Yes, the Lord can judge. But God has also revealed himself to be merciful. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He reveals himself to be in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This line in verse 18 about the Lord slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love is Exodus 34 language. It's the Lord describing what he is like. In the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland, there's a chapter, chapter 16, called the Lord, the Lord. And there's a a, a statement he makes about this Exodus 34 background. It's echoed here. It appears in the prophets and in the Psalms. The scripture in the Old Testament makes much of the character of the Lord as gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love, but not clearing the guilty. How does all of this work together? Dane Ortland says, "If, if we could pick only one passage from the Old Testament to answer the question, who is God? It would be difficult to improve upon Exodus 34. Revealing himself to Moses, God causes his glory to pass by and makes himself known. And he says, short of the incarnation, this in the Old Testament is perhaps the high point of divine revelation before that. And he said one objective way to demonstrate it is how often that language is picked up in the rest of the Old Testament. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It's all over the rest of the Old Testament. It's so striking, explicitly and by allusion. And Dane Ortland says, when you think about Jesus describing himself in Matthew 11, he talks of himself as gentle and lowly. And these words in Exodus 34 describe God as merciful and gracious. And you realize not only does this a, is this a God who takes sin seriously, this is also a God who is pursuing sinners with grace and mercy. And Ortland says, This Christian life is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away and being replaced by God's own insistence about who He is. And Ortland says, This is hard work. 
And it takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. And he says the fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. And he says perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin you regularly indulge in, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place. That what you believe about God would be distorted. About his power and his goodness and his wisdom and his faithfulness. That for some reason those are not the things that animate you and cause you to persevere and delight your heart, but that you have thoughts about God that are simply untrue. Distortions as a result of the fall in our own sinful state. And then Ortland says, the final proof of who God is is not in Exodus 34 or in Numbers 14, but in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Gospels reveal to us the God who is gracious and merciful who has come to draw near to sinners. This is the God that has taken on flesh in the New Testament gospel. And Moses says, I remember what you have said about yourself. So in this scene where they have sinned so greatly, would you with great mercy not strike them down? He says in verse 19, please pardon the iniquity of this people. According to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses has that little line at the end there. You have forgiven this people from Egypt unto us. Like Moses has dealt with people who have shown stiff neckness and who are in need of pardon. And they themselves are struggling to trust the Lord in their fear. We see the Psalms filled with language that reminds us of this episode. I just want to give you a couple examples in Psalm chapter 78. It tells us in verse 32 that the people of God, in spite of all God's works, still sinned. Despite his wonders, they didn't believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. And when he killed them, they sought him and they sought him earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock. But in verse 36, they flattered him with their thoughts and lied to him with their tongues and their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered they are but flesh. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. When we read in Numbers 13 and 14, the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness of Paran, it's stuff like that that the Psalms is remembering. That though they tested the Lord... Again and again, and though they in their steadfastness of stubbornness and stiff-neckedness refused to believe in him from their heart, God still showed abundant compassion. And he preserved their lives for decades. And over time, over those next 40 years, an unbelieving and wicked generation would die. But it is true that though Moses, uh, though Moses prayed that uh, the Lord would spare them, they did not inherit the land. These wicked Israelites, these unbelieving and God-rejecting and Moses-rejecting Israelites would die in the wilderness as they had already said, wouldn't it be better if that had happened? In the pardoning of their iniquity, that seems to work in in this sense. He did not strike them immediately in judgment. 
And Moses has pled for them. They are a generation that the Psalms speak of in Psalm 95. For 40 years, Psalm 95, 10 says, I loathe that generation. And I said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. And therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 106 talks about this generation. They despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents, did not obey the voice of the Lord. And he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. It is striking to see what we have noticed in Numbers 13 and 14 so far. The stiff-necked attitude of the people, the, the proneness to stray in their hearts. And I'm thinking about verse 11. How long will the people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I've done among them. After all that they had seen. And then I think to myself, you know, the most and clearest and ultimate revelation of God was not through all the many prophets and dreams and visions we see throughout the Old Testament, but in the incarnation. And in the incarnation of Christ, how fitting would it be for the lips of Jesus to say things like Numbers 14, verse 11? Jesus could say to his contemporaries, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I mean, what characterized Jesus' ministry? But constant mercy and sign and wonder. Southern parts of the land, northern parts of the land, traveling throughout the land of promise, demonstrating the gracious, forgiving work of God-made flesh. How long will they despise me? And how long will they not believe? The exhortation from Hebrews seems fitting to end our time tonight. Hebrews also talks about this generation. And in Hebrews 3.12 we read, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray.